Okay, uh, welcome everyone to this 14th edition, 14th edition of the Surety Today. My name is Mike Stover, and I'm a partner in the Surety Law Group here at Wright Constable and Skeen in Baltimore, Maryland. I'm joined today by Professor Lisa Sparks, who is of counsel at Wright Constable and Skeen and a longtime member of our Surety Law Group. Lisa graduated summa cum laude from the University of Baltimore School of Law, and now she's a practitioner in residence at the law school where she teaches commercial law, sales, leases, and construction law. Lisa is admitted to the bars of Maryland, Washington, D.C., and Virginia, and practices in surety law, construction law, and commercial law. She's AV rated by Martindale Hubble and has received numerous recognitions, including Top 100 Super Lawyer, Top 50 Women Maryland Super Lawyer, Daily Record Leading Women Honoree, and she's been honored as, was it Professor of the Year? I think, but the students? Uh, faculty member of the year. Faculty member of the year. And she's also lead accredited. So uh, we are, I'm excited to have Lisa join us, particularly on this topic. As you know, Surety Today is designed to keep the busy claims professional up to date and informed on surety industry issues. Wherever you are, if you have a phone, you can dial in. If you miss a presentation, you can listen to a recording on our website at www.wcslaw.com or as a podcast at podbean.com, Surety Today. The program is offered only to in-house claims professionals. We've issued 232 pins as of this morning, and over 560 people have called in since we started the program back in May of last year. We appreciate your support and ask that you pass along our contact information to any colleagues who you think may be interested in calling in. And as I mentioned a minute ago, if you have any suggestions or topics for improvements, please let us know. If you have any technical issues during the call, please contact Ms. Jeannie Hyatt, that's J-H-Y-A-T-T, at WCSlaw.com. We've muted the lines uh, during the presentation to avoid any background noise, and we will unmute the line at the end for any questions. Our topic today is the surety and security interests, Article 9. So I'm going to lead off with just sort of an overview and primer on, um, um, on security interests. And then uh, we'll switch off, uh, Lisa and I, on some, on some other topics. So Article 9 covers security interests in all personal property, whether they're tangible or intangible. Section 9-109 of the UCC defines the scope of Article 9 and identifies what is included and also lists what's not included. The primary innovation of Article 9 is that it establishes a uniform and orderly method for obtaining a security interest in collateral by standardizing the forms, the processes, and the procedures. This standardization allows for greater certainty in one security interest and greater ability to search for and locate other interests that may exist in the debtor that you're dealing with. Article 9, like other UCC titles, is laid out with a number of subtitles. It begins with a subtitle addressing general provisions and definitions. The next subtitle deals with effectiveness of security agreements and attachment. The largest subtitle in, our, in Article 9, not surprisingly, deals with perfection and priorities. This subtitle is followed by subtitles addressing the rights of third parties, filing requirements and procedures, and finally, uh, default. I want to talk about security interests and perfection for a moment. These issues are relevant for a surety claims handler in the event that you're filing your own security interest or in the event that you need to evaluate other security interests to see if they're valid and entitled to a higher priority than your security interest or other rights. The first concept to discuss is the security agreement. UCC Section 1-201, subsection 35, defines a security interest as, quote, an interest in personal property or fixtures that secures 
payment or performance of an obligation, unquote. A security agreement is a written document that conveys a security interest. In the context of, sur of suretyship, the security agreement is usually found in the indemnity agreement. Although the security agreement is sometimes an elaborate document negotiated between the debtor and creditor, it can be as informal and as simple as a single page. There's no magic form or format. The primary purpose of a security agreement is to show to an objective observer that the debtor intended to transfer an interest in personal property as a security to a creditor. A security agreement must contain a description of the collateral. Section 9108 requires that the description of the collateral provide, quote, reasonable identification of the property. Examples of what is considered to be reasonable identification include identification of the collateral by specific listing, by category, by type, by the collateral as defined in the UCC, by quantity, computational formulas, or other procedures, as long as the identity of the collateral is objectively determinable, quote-unquote. Section 9108C states that super-generic descriptions like all the debtor's assets or all the debtor's property do not reasonably identify the collateral for purposes of a security agreement. The next concept to discuss is attachment. For a security interest to be enforceable, it must attach to the collateral. Section 9203 sets forth the requirements for attachment and enforceability of security interests. In general, the creditor must give value, the debtor must have rights in the collateral, and there must be a security agreement or other action indicating an intent to convey a security interest. Once the security interest has attached, it is effective between the debtor and the creditor. Which brings us to the next concept of perfection. Perfection is the step necessary to place the world on notice that a creditor has an interest in the collateral. And perfection is also necessary to give a creditor priority with respect to other creditors over the same collateral. Typically, perfection is achieved by filing a document called a financing statement, sometimes referred to as a UCC-1. Financing statement must identify the debtor, the creditor, and the collateral against which the creditor has a claim. Unlike security agreements, the financing statement only needs to provide a, quote, indication of the collateral, unquote, that is covered. Section 9-405 of the UCC states that a financing statement may use the super generic identification of collateral, such as all assets or all personal property, and that's directly contrary to the, and contrasted with the security agreements, which doesn't allow that. So the UCC adopts the approach of notice filing, which only requires a simple record with a limited amount of information for notice purposes. An interested party must then inquire further to obtain the details of the secured transaction and the collateral covered. Financing statement need not be signed by the debtor and will be effective for five years after the filing. And at this point, I'll turn it over to Lisa. So I'm going to talk a little bit about priorities amongst various security interests and other types of liens. Uh, because of the priority system, your security interest or your lien is, is only as good as your place in line. And we're talking about situations where two creditors have an interest in the same exact collateral. And I point that out because, as Mike said, the UCC-1 is permitted to simply say all of the debtor's assets or all of the debtor's personal property. So it may not be immediately obvious what a security interest is in when you do a basic public record search. You'll get a good idea of who has a security interest, but you have to do a little bit more research to get a hold of competing security agreements and sort out whose interest is in what. 
So assuming that we're talking about that same collateral, uh, there are a couple different basic rules. And, and first I'll just mention that um, there are different methods of perfecting that may uh, control priorities. And as a baseline, you can always file a UCC-1. Every single time, it will not hurt you to file a financing statement. That is always permissible. There are a couple narrow categories of collateral where we prefer something else, however. And that's going to be possession of the collateral for cash, negotiable instruments, which includes uh, promissory notes, drafts and checks, as well as chattel paper, which is the combination of a promissory note and a security agreement, such as that which you would sign if you were financing the purchase of furniture uh, in a retail transaction. They tend to be uh, triplicate forms, pre-made, pretty common uh, in the consumer world. The reason you have to possess those types of collateral is because of the holdership aspect. Uh, whoever has possession of them has better rights than anybody else in the world. Uh, so we want you to possess those as being better than filing. Similarly, control is the preferred means of perfecting a security interest in deposit accounts, and that means a savings account, checking account, or similar type of account at a financial institution, as well as certain investment property. Again, because whomever is in control of those types of collateral has the ability to liquidate, freeze, set off other debts, uh, control is the preferred me method there. You'll often see in a commercial loan arrangement that the bank requires the debtor to keep all of their operating accounts within that bank so that they have this control. As far as what the surety's looking for and the main assets that you would see with a principal, there's the big three, and that's inventory, equipment, and accounts receivable. Those are all going to be covered by UCC-1s. We're also going to frequently see payment intangibles and general intangibles, which may relate to different contract rights that that principal has for an executory contract or funds for work performed. Uh, another one that might pop up in this commercial arena is a commercial tort claim. Uh, for example, if a principal has a tort claim arising out of a project that may somehow be related, that's something you might want an interest in also. But all of those are going to be UCC-1 financing statement perfection. Uh, important to note as well that under the current code, and this wasn't always the case, proceeds from the disposition of any of these forms of collateral are automatically attached, at least until they change their form. So getting down to some rules, and I think for those of you who have uh, been with us the full 14 months, we've alluded to these uh, sometime last summer, um, the internal Article 9 rules come up under 9.322, and they are luckily really straightforward. If you have a perfected security interest and somebody else has an unperfected security interest, the perfected guy wins. If you have two perfected security interests, uh, the winner is whomever was first to file or perfect. Uh, there is an opportunity to pre-file before attachment occurs. It's sort of like staking out your place in line, uh, and that's permissible. And the third rule is if you have Two secured parties who have attached, but neither of whom has perfected, whoever attached first wins. 
So those are really straightforward. We give you a reward for perfecting, and we give you a reward for perfecting sooner. Things get a little more complicated under 9.317, and that's where we look at a conflict between an Article 9 creditor and a creditor arising under some other law, either a judgment creditor who's attempting to levy collateral or a bankruptcy trustee who's marshalling assets for the benefit of the estate. In that case, in order to win as an Article 9 secured creditor against either of those outside parties, you need a signed security agreement with an adequate description of the collateral, as Mike discussed, along with that perfection of filed UCC1 before the levy takes place or before the bankruptcy has been filed. Uh, it's okay if the uh, grant of value from the creditor follows a little bit later, uh, certainly, in commercial lending, you'll see that all the paperwork's done before any funds are dispersed. I think, though, in the surety world, we would tend to see those things a little bit more contemporaneous, where the issuance of the bond follows very quickly um, after all of the other documentation, unless it's a very long-standing relationship and that GAI is pretty old. Uh, since I brought up bankruptcy, I will mention here as well that the preference period is an issue with Article 9. As always, uh, no matter what, we are looking out for bankruptcy filings and what the trustee is going to try to undo retrospectively, and they can undo either an attachment or a perfection if it's occurred during that preference period. All of your other bankruptcy defenses, like new value, would apply uh, to avoid that from happening. The last thing I want to mention in terms of priorities is the concept of the PMSI, which stands for Purchase Money Security Interest. And both the code and the courts treat PMSIs a little extra special. And the concept of the PMSI is that the secured party enabled the debtor to obtain the collateral. This is what many of us have done when we've gone out and bought a car with financing. That's a PMSI, and it's very analogous to the purchase money mortgage that you would use to buy a house or other real property. Special rule applies there in that the purchase money secured party has a 20-day grace period in order to file their UCC-1. And as long as they do that within 20 days of the debtor taking possession of the collateral, then they're going to get a retroactive effect to the date of the security agreement. And any other secured parties that happen to arise in the meantime get sort of bumped out by that. Uh, in addition, the purchase money rules offer some line jumping priorities for inventory and equipment lenders. So once a uh, commercial entity has a floating lien, that is, they've granted a security interest in all of their inventory, equipment, and accounts, now owned, hereafter acquired, and forevermore to some big bank, uh, they can still offer a security interest to a secured party that finances the purchase of new inventory or equipment. And with a little bit of paperwork, they will get a super priority and jump in line ahead of that big bank. Okay. Thanks for that. So I'm just going to spend a couple minutes talking about equitable subrogation under Article 9. Uh, the surety's right of equitable subrogation is not affected or modified by the UCC. Section 1-103 of the UCC expressly states that it does not displace 
the particular provisions of the principles of law in equity, which are deemed to supplement the UCC. Thus, thus the contemplation of the UCC is not that it is done away with or, or supplanted the rights of equity, but rather it has supplemented those equitable rights. Section 9-109 regards the general scope of Title IX, provides that the title applies to a transaction regardless of its form that creates a security interest in personal property or fixtures by contract. And that's the key, the key point of that provision by contract. The surety's right of equitable subrogation arises by operation of law. It is not a right that arises by contract. And therefore, equitable subrogation is not governed by Article 9. The great weight of authority holds that the surety's rights of equitable subrogation are not subject to the UCC, and so there is no need to file a financing statement or comply with Article 9 for the equitable subrogation rights to be valid. There's a large number of cases on this issue, and one in particular uh, in Ray Modular Structures, 27 F. 3rd, 72, 3rd Circuit, 1994, stated that, quote, the overwhelming and essentially unanimous post-UCC decisions in federal as well as state courts have held that no UCC filing is necessary to perfect, to perfect a surety's interest, unquote. Now, notwithstanding the fact that the surety's equitable right of subrogation are not governed by the UCC, the surety should give serious thought to using its rights under the indemnity agreement to perfect a secured party status under the UCC. By perfecting as a secured creditor, the surety will be protecting some of its interests in the event that there are any gaps or timing issues with respect to its equitable subrogation rights. As George and I discussed in our Surety Today segment in March of this year, um, on the limits of the surety's equitable subrogation rights, there are certain instances where equitable subrogation may not apply. In addition, courts generally have a better understanding and greater experience with the UCC security interests as opposed to a surety's equitable rights, and the surety may find a more understanding and sympathetic court as a secured party under the UCC. So just some food for thought there, even though equitable subrogation rights are not governed by the UCC, it still might make sense for the surety to perfect its uh, security interests under the UCC and try to use both of those rights or one or the other to its advantage. Please. Yeah, certainly. I, I tend to agree with Mike. Uh, even if equitable subrogation wins the day, perfecting with that filed financing statement, uh, UCC1, it's an electronic upload in most jurisdictions now, maybe $30, $40 filing fee, uh, can be done in-house by the surety, might get you to the same ends faster, easier, cheaper than pursuing the subrogation matter. Similarly, there is an opportunity with a perfected security interest uh, by means of filing the UCC-1 with the uh, indemnity agreement attached to it to utilize the contract assignment rights. And there are some really interesting arguments that have been made uh, in some legal scholarship over the years. I've not been able to find a case where this has clearly worked or not clearly worked. Uh, so I think it's worthwhile to keep the argument in mind. And so combining the concept of the PMSI, uh, which comes up and is defined in 9103A2, and I'm paraphrasing here, but a, a purchase money obligation, that would be the obligation of the principal, is an obligation incurred for value given to enable the debtor to acquire rights in or the use of the collateral if the value is in fact so used. 
So while the surety is not extending credit in the traditional sense of the word, the issuance of the bond is really necessary for the principal to get uh, the contract and the project that they've bid on. So the position here would be sort of like, but for our bond, the principal and debtor wouldn't have the contract. Uh, therefore, we are a PMSI secured party as to contract funds and also as to broader concepts of contract assignment. So the argument would be that the surety is a super priority PMSI lender. Uh, they have slightly higher, slightly better rights than maybe a pre-existing bank with some sort of loan arrangement with that same principal and debtor. Uh, the use of an after-acquired property clause or similar language in the GAI could also get you ahead of that floating lien if it is a long-standing bonding relationship and you've entered into that agreement many years ago before they took out their financing. I will note that some states have looked at intangibles and said that they can't be PMSIs. Uh, some states have been very specific about subsets of intangibles. Uh, some have been broader, so this is not a clear-cut argument with a lot of great case law to cite, but I think it's an interesting argument that could be useful uh, if a surety finds itself up against a bank and everybody's scrambling for uh, some contract funds uh, without many other arguments or opportunities available. Okay. All right, I wanted to touch on um, just a few sort of practical arguments or issues that can be raised in response to a secured creditor uh, who might be seeking some of the same assets that the uh, surety might be looking at. So in a circumstance where a secured creditor is seeking to recover bonded contract funds, uh, if you recall, I said that in order for attachment to occur, the debtor must have rights in those funds. In a typical case, with, with bonded contract funds at issue, the debtor or the principal has gone into default under the contract, and then the claim has been made for the surety to respond. In that circumstance, under most um, construction contracts that the principal will have executed, whether it's a, a subcontract or even a, even a general contract, they will not be entitled to the contract funds because they haven't performed. They're in default. And if they're in default and haven't performed, the obligee has no, ob no obligation to pay, and therefore there's no debt due, there's no right in those funds until those funds have been earned, and they haven't been earned as long as the debtor or the principal is in default. And, of course, when the surety performs, the surety is entitled to payment of the bonded contract funds as its return performance, and it is entitled to those funds ahead of the principal and the secured party claiming through the principal. In a circumstance where a secured party is seeking to assert its interest in stored materials of the principal or the debtor, the surety will want to look at whether title has passed to such materials because if the principal or the debtor does not have title to the materials, then those materials cannot be the subject of a security interest. And so you would look at um, the contract documents. You would look at the um, Article 2, talking about the sale and transfer of goods. Um, for example, under the AIA, the A201, General Conditions Section 9.3.3 provides that title transfers to the owner at the time of payment for materials. So uh, in addition, typically, in order for materials off-site to be paid uh, by the contract, by the obligee, you typically have to provide a bill of sale or some other type of document expressly transferring title. So keep in mind that that's an argument to be made. 
Um, in a circumstance where a secured party is seeking to assert its interest in materials of the debtor, the surety may also be able to assert that there was a buyer in the ordinary course. Under Section 9-320A, a buyer in the ordinary course takes free of a security interest created by the buyer's seller, even if the security interest is perfected and the buyer knows of its existence. And so you've got to look through the code there and, and see what qualifies as a buyer in the ordinary course, what qualifies as good faith, but that argument may be able to be asserted to get around a security interest that's in place. Another argument that could be made uh, with respect to inventory is that uh, you, take, you can take inventory free and clear of a security interest under Section 9-315A1 um, if, if uh, two conditions are met. The first is that the sale of the inventory has to be authorized, and the second is that there's a continuation of a security interest in the proceeds of that sale. And if you think about it, it makes sense, right? If a lender uh, has a security interest on inventory of the, of the principal, um, you know, they want that inventory to be sold so that the money can be generated to pay back the loan. And so the, the code has provided this uh, process for getting that type of material free and clear of a security interest because the, the secured party now has a security interest in the proceeds, the cash that was paid for the inventory of materials. So uh, it makes sense, and courts have, have recognized that there's an implied authorization in that context where inventory is being sold and there's a secured lender. So those are just some practical arguments that can be made. Yeah, and following on to that, uh, we may also have some conflicts with a lessor under Article 2A uh, in a similar fashion as we would have with a, um, a lender who financed the purchase of equipment or materials that are on site with the project. So I know the only thing that's scarier than the UCC is when we talk about two different articles of the UCC together, but it really is important to sort out uh, both both areas, as Mike was discussing, title ownership issues and the rights in the collateral with Article 2 mixing in. Uh, but here we have 2A as a lessee or Article 9 if it was secured. And preliminarily, I want to note that if you've got equipment on site that the surety would like to utilize for completion of a project, uh, maybe you are picking up subcontracts directly to complete a project. Maybe you're bringing in a completion contractor. But in any case, uh, the agreements virtually always say that the surety has the right to retain and use that equipment for efficiency, and we know it can make a huge difference in the cost and time to complete, particularly not just for equipment, but for materials and if they're custom manufactured goods uh, to meet the project needs, going back to reprocure those could take a lot of time and money. But on the equipment side, you want to differentiate between financed equipment and financed leased equipment. And that can be difficult to do. Regular leased equipment is usually pretty obvious because it's got a big sticker on the side of it that says Sunbelt or United Rentals or maybe some other companies out on the West Coast that I'm not familiar with. Uh, and they tend to show up to take that pretty quickly after a default of the principal who's not been paying them either. But finance leased equipment is going to be financed usually through some sort of bank or similar lending institution not going to bear all of those uh, all those insignia of the lessor and the payments were being made to that banking entity. So if it's a true financing arrangement, if the money was loaned, then title should be 
in the principal. If it's a finance lease, then title lies with that bank instead. So you really need to sort out, is it financed, is it a finance lease? And then determine what the best course of action is. If it's a finance lease, much like you would do with a regular lease, you might want to just pick up the lease payments if you were really want to use that equipment. If you are up against a financing entity, a true secured party under Article 9, then you're going to start looking into these priority issues and determine if it's possible uh, that you have priority under an agreement of indemnity, under a UCC-1 that was filed before them. You want to look at whether they're a PMSI lender with super priority. Did they blow that 20-day deadline and it took them 45 days to file their UCC-1? If so, they don't get to jump in line ahead of the surety. In any case, you're going to want to examine those items, figure out which bodies of law are at issue, Article 2, Article 9, Article 2A, and Article 9, uh, and determine the appropriate priorities to streamline that process. Okay, thanks, Lisa. So we're, we're at the end here. Uh, and in closing, uh, before we open up the line for the Q&A period, I uh, wanted to let everybody know the next edition of Surety Today will be Monday, July 10th at 1230. Our topic will be the surety and arbitration, and I'll be joined by my partner, Jason Potter. <clears throat> the upcoming event that I'm aware of is Surety Claims Institute on June 21st through the 23rd, um, holding its annual meeting and seminar at Nemecolin Woodlands Resort in Farmington, Pennsylvania. So let me um, unmute the line here. And open up the floor to anyone with questions. <clears throat> have a have a question for for the audience. It'd be helpful if we if we took questions by email, you know, as we were talking. That way, we could at the end take a look at the emails that came in with any questions, and then we could answer we could answer them that way. Do people think that would be a better approach? Yes. I agree. I think yes, I think have it. <laughs> All right. Well, next time we'll we'll announce that we'll send that out in the announcement, and if you have any questions, we'll be we'll be looking at them for you know for our emails to see <clears throat> what they are at the end. Anybody with any questions before we close out? What are the specific rules of filing the UCC in the states that they are incorporated in, in the states that they have real estate in, all of the above? Great question. Ideally, you want to file in the state where the collateral exists and understanding that unlike real property, personal property can be mobile uh, and businesses may operate in multiple locations. There are certainly circumstances where you might want to file in two jurisdictions. You know, For example, here uh, in the Baltimore area where Mike and I practice, we have a lot of uh, contractors who operate in Maryland, D.C., and Northern Virginia. And there have been times where I have filed financing statements in both Maryland and Virginia uh, out of concern that the collateral could move. Now, do you, I know some of them it in the, in, it's all over the place. Is there any Article kind of nine walk, Article 9 walks through uh, the, the, the circumstances of where the party is located, whether they're a corporation, whether they're out of state, out of the country. It walks through all of those circumstances and directs you where to file. So there's a, there's pretty good discussion of that in Article 9. Cool. Okay. 
All right, everybody, thanks very much. And Thank uh, we'll you. hopefully uh, speak to everybody again next month. Bye-bye. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you.